This is Mark Steiner here on Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show. Produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. In the second part of our program, we'll have a conversation on bottled water, and then here, a new recipe. We're about to have a conversation with a young woman, an activist, a young, one of our young warriors out here, uh, who's been on the show many times over the last three years. Her name is Destiny Watford. At least she is leader of Free Your Voice and United Workers uh, in the Curtis Bay community that stopped that incinerator. And many of us woke up the other morning to find out that Destiny had won the what I call the Nobel Prize of, uh, in, of Environmental Activists and en- Environmental Activism. The Goldman Prize that, that bring, for people who bring attention to the consequences that environmental inequities bring on the, onto our communities. And Destiny, welcome. Good to have you back. And congratulations. This is amazing. Thank you, Mark. I'm happy to have this opportunity. <laughs> so I heard that when you won the Goldman Prize that you weren't even sure what that was. <laughs> is that right? Right. I mean, when I first got the call, I thought it was a scam. <laughs> So talk, talk. I mean, let's, let's get our listeners, take our listeners backwards. I mean, the first time, back in time a bit. The first time that we met is when you began to form your your group at Ben Franklin High School to oppose the building of this incinerator in the middle of your community in Curtis Bay. To, to take our listeners back to that moment uh, when, when that when it started. We started the fight to stop the incinerator back in 2012, and it's been a really long journey since then. But we we started our fight because I say our meaning for your voice, which is a student-led human rights group based out of my high school, Benjamin Franklin. And we kind of started just looking at human rights and looking at our community and seeing what kind of injustices we were dealing with or the issues that were happening in our community. And when we learned about the plan to build the incinerator, we knew that we had to stop it because it violated those human rights that we held dear. But one of the things I think struck me about the, 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 over those last several years of your fighting the incinerator and building this movement with you and others is that when you first started this, th- this was high school students and many of the adults in your community, not all, but many really opposed what you were trying to do. They were, they were worried about it and they wanted the jobs. I can remember that very clearly. Mm-hmm. Talk, I mean, talk a bit about that. I mean, that, how, that, how that transitioned and the struggle and what you did to organize and change that. So one, yeah, you're right. I mean, a big part of our campaign has been and telling them about the incinerator. And although it didn't happen often, a lot of the, uh, of the people who, the very few people that were in favor of the project, it wasn't because they thought it was this, like, beautiful green alternative, but rather because there is a need for jobs, um, which is very true and is a very real and honest concern. I mean, the majority or a lot of people in Curtis Bay are unemployed, and the jobs that people do have are often not in the community. And so something that we, that was something that we thought about a lot and that we considered as we pushed for positive alternatives. But I'll talk about that in a second. Sure. But to get to your, when you asked that a specific memory came to mind, and it was when we were canvassing one day and I walked up to this door and I was telling, and an old man answered and, and I was telling him about the incinerator and what we were trying to do to stop it um, in ways that he could get involved. And he kind of pauses and he looks at me for a second and he says, you know, the work that you kids are doing is pointless. Curtis Bay is and always will be a dumping ground. And 
even though that moment was really disheartening and its words angered not only myself but a lot of members in the group, we realized that there's so much that we have to learn about our community's history with being treated as a dumping. People sort of, after people have been used as, after people's health has have been used as like the sacrifice for so long, for generations, and after people have been, you know, pushed out of their communities because of developments like the incinerator, that not only pushed them from their homes, but also sacrificed their lives and their livelihoods in the process, we realized that when developments like the incinerator come along, people kind of just accept it as the status quo and don't really question it. And something that we did in our campaign or something that we realized pretty early on was that if we're going to make true change, then we have to change hearts and minds and sort of change this, you know, what we call in the group a dumping ground mentality, which is sort of like this passive acceptance of of the status quo, of things like the incinerator coming into our community and the idea that we don't have the power to stop it towards active resistance and saying, you know what, just because developments like the incinerator that have polluted our environment and our, has, have put our lives at risk on a daily basis have come into our communities in the past doesn't mean that that has to be our future. Um, and we've used arts to do that to change hearts and minds and to share our narrative. And you know, one of the things you, it's clear that you did in the community was to change hearts and minds because you built a movement, I think, that may encompass the majority of people in Curtis Bay who want to see a different kind of life there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a very powerful thing that you all did. I mean, that's, and then, and then that, that, that you, these then young people, you were a junior in high school when you started this, right? Senior. Senior. You were a senior. So... You know, when I, let me take go back a minute because you, you said something here. I want you to explain for our listeners because I think that we've talked about it so many times. We may think that everybody really knows about it, which is when 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 that older man said to you that Curtis Bay is just a dumping ground. And always will be. Talk a bit about that. People don't realize, you know, that that, what you, that your zip code is one of the most polluted zip codes in the entire nation. Right. So talk a bit about that. I mean, a feel for what that was and what it is really still. Yeah. So. What the man said, even though it angered us, was very much true. I mean, Curtis Bay has been treated as a dumping ground, like, historically, for generations. Curtis Bay has some of the worst air pollution in the nation, as you've mentioned, and has the worst air pollution in Maryland. I mean, in Baltimore, more people die related to air pollution than, like, the deaths related to air pollution is higher than the homicide rate. It's amazing. Community, 50% of them are preventable. I mean, like, when I talk about developments like the incinerator pushing communities out, that isn't, like, to be taken lightly, and I'm sure people don't. But there, so just to give people an image of Curtis Bay, we have a park and a rec center and a community garden and hundreds of people living there and homes. And that community, that community that I love is divided by this long metal fence and Curtis Bay's backyard is what seems to be this endless sea of polluting industry. The thing is, all of that industry, we're talking about the city's landfill, uh, the nation's medical, the nation's largest medical waste incinerator, um, a coal pier, and the list goes on and on. We're talking about a place where there's so much 
so much polluting industry, but that place used to be the home of two communities, Fairfield and Wagner's Point. And what happened to these communities is that polluting developments came in, sacrificed communities' health. Um, I've heard stories about people living in Fairfield where they walked to a certain point in their communities and they literally couldn't breathe. I've heard stories about I've heard stories about it and I've read articles about weekly like basis. I remember reading an article about a woman who was so used to the explosion, so used to the the pollution that would come from the polluting industry that, you know, after an explosion happened, she said that she could see the mushroom cloud like a bomb at Hiroshima and she closed her windows and her doors and she just you know, she just said, you know what, you learn to live with these things. And that's, that's really, really horrifying because no one should have to live with that. No one forced out of their communities to pave way for developments like the incinerator, for polluting developments that put our lives at risk. And that, you know what, the truth is they're all, there are alternatives that are worth exploring. And that's what our community has taken a step to do to break the cycle of these of polluting developments coming in pushing us out and sacrificing our lives in the process so the, the in the what what happened there with curtis bay I'll, again let's let's get our listeners really understand the depth of this mm-hmm. what you took on was a company called energy answers and the state of maryland um which is which is a huge huge uh, company uh, and the wishes of the state to put this here. I mean, that, give some context to that, because I think people don't realize, again, I want, I want people to realize um, what all these young people did with you in Curtis Bay to stop a very powerful yeah. company and state from building this incinerator. Yeah, I mean, the crazy thing is the incinerator, it would have been burning 4,000 tons of trash every day. It was permitted to release 240 pounds of mercury every year and 1,000 pounds of lead. We all know from the crisis in Flint just how detrimental lead is to our health, even at tiny amounts, and we're talking about 1,000 pounds. The incinerator, there's actually, it would have been built less than a mile away from my high school and from my community. And I mention this because there's actually a law in Maryland that prohibits incineration from, or incinerators from being built within a mile of a school. But the way that the incinerator company got around this was by designating itself as a renewable power plant. Just to give you an idea of some of the power that we were dealing with, when we first started the campaign, our previous governor, Governor O'Malley, who you may have known ran for president on a green platform, and our mayor, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, were strongly in favor of the project. The project was viewed as this, amazing solution to the the energy and waste crisis. But in reality, it would be creating a lot of pollution, would create a lot of, would be very damaging for our community and really for the state of Maryland in entirety. And, you know, incineration is in Maryland is considered to be tier one which basically just means that it's considered a renewable energy, and it's on the same level as solar and wind. Um, that, that's amazing. When you, every time you say that on the show, when we talk about this, that just blows me away to think how that's done. 
You know, yeah. it's crazy. It's like it's like it's like it's like the tier one business with marijuana being like heroin. You know, what I mean, it's insane. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, I mean to interrupt. I was just, just every time I hear that, it just blows my mind. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's absolutely outrageous that something that pollutes, something that represents the types of developments that have led to communities like Fairfield and Wagner's Point no longer existing is considered renewable and something that we should strive for, even though it's not. And so that was what we were dealing with um, in our group. And, like, the power that we were going up against. And it's just the incinerator would have been the wrong step forward. It's It was a false solution. When it was proposed, it was supposed to be the the like glowing solution but it wasn't it was supposed to be creating a lot of jobs that would have been going to the community but it wouldn't have been in reality you know some of the alternatives that we're looking at recycling solar farm uh composting creates two to three more jobs than the incinerator would and we're talking about jobs that would actually go to the community and that is a critical piece of this, I think, that what you just said um, in what you're doing. And I'm sure besides stopping the incinerator, when they decided to give you the Goldman Prize, which is given to six people across the globe and one from where in North America, um, uh, is that you didn't just s- stop to oppose. You didn't just build a movement to oppose the incinerator. You're actually building a movement and conversations to build a new kind of economy that's healthy for the community, which I think is an important aspect to this. Yeah, it is. I mean, the incinerator is not the first development of its kind. And so if we're going to keep fighting off things like the incinerator that represent this long line of, especially environmental injustice, we have to have alternatives. Um, Because there's nothing... In building alternatives as a community, we also build community power and community unity. And so that the next time that something like the incinerator is proposed, we have the power to say no, and that there are positive alternatives to this. So, I mean, I, I hear you win this Goldman Prize, which last year, of course, was won by Kikaders, who who is the um, incredible woman, Honduran environmental leader who was assassinated this year. It's, it's won by some of the most incredible people on the planet, including Destiny, including Destiny Watford. Um, and I, it's, so it's such a huge honor that you bring this award home um, to, to Baltimore. And it's also a light to how struggle people can win their struggles. Um, I mean, there's still struggle to go. They could bring, try to bring the incinerator back. You're still going to have to fight this thing. But the idea that you were able to build this movement as a young person is incredibly important for people to understand here. Um, really important. Uh, so, tell us. What, what, so, you, so this prize comes with one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. What do you do with that? And what do you do next? Um, we're still trying to figure out what to do with the prize money, but the idea is to use a portion of it to keep our work going, the good work that we're doing on the ground. Well, it's, I, I, I think that's wonderful. I, I'm just so – I think all of us are just – especially those of us who have known you since you started this and um, have followed the struggle and tried to bring it to light here on our, on our program. 
uh, are just so proud of you and of the of, of what you've not just you but you and the entire movement what young people can do how movement can be built how things can change uh, how not to give up in a struggle and how to organize and Destiny Watford you have been an inspiration I think to not just me but to in Curtis Bay but to this entire community of Baltimore and to the nation and now the world uh, and uh, we just I just want to say deeply congratulations uh, deep congratulations to you Destiny Watford leader with your free voice uh, free your voice United Workers uh, and you, you enter, you're going into your senior year now at Towson yeah I'm going to head into my senior year <laughs> that's it's just great crazy. It, yeah. <laughs> it is crazy but it's wonderful so uh, Destiny really congratulations and I look forward to giving you a giant hug when I see you next <laughs> same here you're listening to Sound Bites and the Mark Steiner Show produced out of your source for cool jazz and more WEAA 88.9 FM the voice of the community here in Baltimore and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. We have to take a brief break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll have a conversation about bottled water and the environment. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner right here on Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. We're about to have a conversation now about bottled water and our environment and things we may not even know about it. This was inspired uh, by the article written by Roberto Ferdman in the Washington Post, America's Growing Love Affair with the Most Wasteful Thing to Drink There Is. Uh, and, uh, and he wrote it for the Washington Post Wonk blog. Roberto, welcome. Good to have you with us. Glad you're here. Thanks for having me. And Christopher Hogan is with us. Chris Hogan is the... Um, uh, International Bottle Water Association's Vice President for Communications. Good to have you with us, Chris. Glad to be here. Thanks, Mark. And Emily Worth is Water Program Director for Food and Water Watch. And Emily, welcome. Good to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. So let's begin, uh, Roberto, to talking about your your piece that you put in the in the, in the uh, for, for the Post. Um, and that, I mean, it's the, the, the headline itself is glaring. I know writers don't write their own headlines usually, um, but <laughs> but talk a bit about what the heart of the article is. So the, the genesis of this article is a new batch of data that was shared with me um, by Beverage Marketing Corporation. Um, and this was about bottled water consumption, and it showed not just where we are today, but um, where we'll be in two years projected out by, uh, by their, their research department. Um, and what they found is that um, basically water, bottled water consumption has been going up systematically um, over the past few years. Um, and it's projected to continue to rise to the point where in 2017 they're projecting that the average person in the United States will drink more bottled water um, each year than they drink soda, um, uh, which is substantial because soda for decades has been the most consumed packaged drink in the country. So, that, so that's kind of the, the center of it. Um, and. And then I, I talked about why and why, you know, this is really troubling to a lot of people. And some of the people are um, those like Peter Gleick at the Pacific Institute, um, who uh, has written quite a bit about bottled water and why it's wasteful. Um, others are National Park Services, who have worried about um, leftover plastic uh, in their parks and have moved, in fact, to ban bottles of water instead uh, replacing them with filling stations where people can use bottles um, 
refillable bottles for water made out of um, metal or sometimes plastic um, to drink water from the tap from water fountains. Well, I'm, I'm um, so the general. Go ahead. I'm finishing chatting, Roberto. Go ahead. I was just going to say that the general the general picture is that we're drinking more and more bottled water um, each year, and and that's a troubling thing for a lot of people. So I'm I'm very curious. There's a couple of things in here that are really interesting, and and, and why this has happened in America. And and I, uh, Chris, I'll start with you and Emily. Please jump in. I'm, I'm when when I read that that in 1970 um, that we were drinking, I think I read five gallons a year per person. Uh, and we're now up to 35 gallons of bottled water per year. And there was no bottled water, of course, in 1970. We just went to water fountains or got tap water. Is that one gallon per year in 1970? One gallon. So <laughs> I gave us four yeah. gallons too much. So, uh, <laughs> so t- t- <laughs> one gallon to 35, that's amazing. I know we all have to hydrate. That's the big thing. To hydrate, hydrate. So, Emily, t- your analysis, and I'll turn to Chris. But what is happening here? Well, I think there's a few things that have been going on. I mean, I think there's been tremendous marketing um, done by the bottled water industry, as um, Roberto wrote about in his article, to make it, you know, popular and trendy to be drinking bottled water. Um, but, you know, I think there are policy decisions that are also leading to this in- this growth in the consumption of bottled water, and that's something that we've been tracking here at Food and Water Watch for a long time. It's interesting that you mentioned the 1970s because what we've seen since that time is a consistent cutback in the share of, of the amount of federal funding and the share of funding for our water and sewer systems in the United States that comes from the federal government. And so in 1977, we had the largest federal share of investment in our water systems to maintain our basic water infrastructure. Um, and that was at 63% at that time, and it fell to a record low of 7% in 2006 under the Bush administration. And so what we've seen is that we just simply are not providing the amount of funding that's needed by water systems to maintain um, these needs. And in the meantime, um, you know, there's been this tremendous increase in marketing of bottled water. And, you know, the bottled water industry has made it clear that they see this lack of funding from the government in our water systems as an opportunity for them to increase their their sales. This actually, the Nestle's water chairman, Kim, Kim Jeffries, said that, you know, we believe tap water infrastructure will decline and that that's an opportunity for bottled water. And so I think, um, you know, it's something that we at Food and Water Watch are very concerned about because we think everyone has a basic right to safe and affordable water. Um, and in fact, in many places, um, tap water is tested more than bottled water for basic safety measures. And so there's a lot of marketing that's made people to believe that they should question the quality of their tap water and instead turn to bottled water as a safer alternative when in, in many cases that's just not the case. And so I think you know, these are some of the trends that we've identified as concerning, and that's why we've been advocating for a long time for a dedicated source of funding so that we can upgrade our kind of um, aging water infrastructure systems that we've invested in now for generations. You know, our grandparents were paying tax dollars probably that, that helped to build this pipeline. And it's amazing that in this country, in most places, you can turn on the tap and you can get drinking water that you can, that you can use and meet your daily needs. And so that's why we're advocating for, um, you know, dedicated source of funding that can be counted on and that we can use to upgrade these systems across the country, which is not only the best for consumers because it's the cheapest, but it's also the best for the environment. I mean, the, the bottled water waste plastic 
Coke uses fossil fuels. You know, we're using millions of gallons of oil to build the bottles that then we're putting in with water, and about half of them are now being filled with tap water. And so those are so, those are some of our concerns. So, so Chris, I mean, what is the industry's take on this? I mean, and why we are – I mean, part of it is – I know that the same people that that that, that own sodas own most of the bottle the water industry as well, and and there's a big switch in what the consumers are doing. Well, uh, certainly from the from the bottled water industry's perspective, uh, yeah, it's I, I think we tend to be a very easy target, and um, very often a, a lot of the charges leveled against bottled water um, are are made in a way that makes it uh, very very easy to fit into a narrative about how um, terrible they want bottled water to appear. The one thing that I always try to get across is, as an industry, and certainly any time I've said anything and anything we say publicly, we want people to drink water. And if that means drinking tap water, that's great. If it's out of a filter, that's great as well. But we want to have bottled water available when people want to purchase a packaged drink. And we don't compete with tap water. Um, we have no problem with uh, refilling stations uh, being installed, people being encouraged to, to use home filters if that's what they prefer. But when it comes to making that packaged beverage choice, we want bottled water to be on the shelf. Um, policies like uh, the policy that allows uh, the banning of bottled water in the national parks. Yeah, talk about that. Why, why do you oppose that? They, well, we oppose that because um, for a couple of reasons. First, you're taking water out of the park system in terms of someone being able to purchase a bottle. What they're not doing is taking out sodas, sports drinks. Um, Effectively, what they're saying is you cannot choose bottled water if you want to get your kids something to drink, but you can choose a sports drink. You can choose a soda. Um, Now, there are, of course, uh, the options for... um, uh, for uh, refill stations or reusable containers, and that's fine. But not everyone necessarily wants that, and not everyone um, is uh, always going to take that option if that option is available. A lot of times people just want to be able to grab something and go. And this kind of a policy is um, going after the healthiest package drink, but leaving in its place products that use more water to manufacture more plastic in the containers, significantly more plastic, and yet the argument is being made that, well, we want to reduce plastic waste. Uh, We want to uh, reduce the amount of water that's used in these products. Yet those are the very products that are being left in in their place. So 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 those are the kind of policies that that don't make a lot of sense. And if I I could just say on on the large... Let me just, Roberto, let me let you jump uh, in. No, I don't want to interrupt Chris. Chris, please continue I'll, when you're done. Well, just in the interest of okay. time. Well, thank you. Because we only have like a little bit. I, I want to make sure just in the interest of time that let you, Roberto, just jump in. We'll come right back to Chris and Emily. Just what were you about to say? Well, I was going to say that I think that it's, um, to me at least, it's a little bit disingenuous to say that bottled water doesn't compete with tap water. Um, that the, the kind of presupposition behind that statement is that someone doesn't make the decision to buy bottled water before leaving one's home. The hope is that someone would purchase a bottle that they can carry around and refill. If they go to a national park, they anticipate wanting to drink something, and they bring that with them. Furthermore, the point of national parks is kind of debunked, at least on a certain level, by the fact that in the aftermath of imposing this ban, these parks have seen a dramatic decrease in the amount of 
of plastic bottles left in their in their trash cans and, you know, the numbers they've had to recycle, which to say that people aren't replacing those bottles of water with bottles of soda and energy drinks, et cetera. What they're doing is they're either drinking well, water I, I, with I, I, bottled waters or they're not drinking water at all. I'm not saying that it's not to say that people don't don't make that shift. I agree. Right. I think that people do sometimes choose soda over water. That's that's definitely true. Um, but I don't think that that's ideal. And I don't well, think that that's so, what so, we as a society should encourage. So go ahead, go ahead, Chris, and I'm going to go right back to Emily. Well, uh, sure. Well, let me just uh, – two, two quick points. The first, uh, about the, the Park Service ban, um, in congressional testimony uh, and in follow-up communications that were released as, a, as an obligation of that congressional testimony, the National Park Service made it very clear that they have actually done no monitoring of waste disposal, at any of the parks that have the bans in place, they have not actually monitored any of the changes in either the consumption patterns or the waste disposal of plastic waste in the park system. Um, so in terms of them actually having data to support that claim, uh, that data does not yet exist, and the Park, and, park Service has acknowledged that. But, and, and but I, even on the, the larger I, sense, the larger sense is consumers are making that change um, in uh, between 2002 and 2011 the biggest shift um, consumers drinking bottled water came from sports drinks soft drinks and packaged juices so so when people are making that change they are making that change for health reasons and they're making that change for lifestyle reasons and that's something we encourage and, and just one other point. Yeah, very quick. We, we do have some we time limitations absolutely, here. We are absolutely in support of a strong public water system because, as Emily noted, about half of bottled water is purified bottled water, which often starts in a public water system. We're customers of public water systems. So, Emily, so, let, let, me, let me, Emily pick up from there for a moment. Just, 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 I, mean, the, I mean, that about the national parks well, but also what you're about to about say about the national parks yeah i mean a couple of things like according to pure disposable plastic water bottles were the single greatest contributor to trash in the parks so there was a real policy reason for them to make this shift and i think it's important for people to think about the fact that there is an alternative that's the same product you know you can get water from these filling stations so it's different than choosing something that's a completely different product like like soda or something else and so i think there is this alternative and we don't oppose it's not we something that's that, great. right, and so I. But I just think that it's reasonable that the parks would make this this decision. They're providing an alternative that's accessible to everyone, and it's. I have read that Zion National Park did track that they saved sixty thousand bottles were reduced from the waste stream because of this policy. And so I think, you know, it's a real um, it's a real shame that the bottled water industry used its lobbying and you know, influence in Congress to try to change this policy that from what we can tell was effective. And I should point out that the National Park Service wasn't allowed to speak, you know, in support or against the bill either way, you know, and I'm sure they haven't done a full analysis yet of that policy, but I wanted to point out that Zion has done that. And so I think that's really important. This um, might be a silly question for the three of you, but I'm going to throw it anyway, because when when I said began the show talking about the 1970, I said five and Roberto corrected me as one gallon of, of, of water a year that on average Americans drinking now what are 35 is is there any anything Roberto that says that we don't need as much water as we're drinking that we're like obsessing with hydrating (laughs) that's funny there is there is actually some recent research that pointed to exactly that 
Um, you know, but as someone who covers this sort of discussion, discussions around health um, as they relate to food and uh, beverage and, and, you know, in the intake of, of, other, of other sorts of nutrition, a single study I, I don't think is, means that we have a definitive take on whether or not we should be drinking water or not. I think that the, the general consensus is that staying hydrated is really important, whether that means drinking you know, five cups of water a day or ten. Um, I can't say with any, right. with any certainty. Right, right. Um, but, but you're right to point that out because a part of what um, the industry has pushed on to people or at least mm -hmm. stood behind and given a loudspeaker to is this notion that we should be drinking water all the time. And I think that it's really important to point something out, which is that Chris is completely right to say that it is a healthier choice when you go somewhere to buy a packaged beverage and you choose water yes. instead of soda or a sugary drink. That is absolutely right. Um, it's right pretty much every single time that you do it. But And bottled water has a very important place in the world, as it does in certain parts of the United States, where where tap water is, is either not as clean as it should be or not as accessible as it should be. Um, but we should view bottled water as a stepping stone, not as an end. It should be a stepping stone to a point where everyone has the means to tap to drink tap water when they want water. Um, in fact, when so they drink tap water when when they want a beverage more often than not, um, it, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be an end. And the problem is not that we buy bottled water; it's that we are buying more and more bottled water every year. So, uh, so to take and go ahead, Emily. Oh, and I just think it's really important for people to know that even though plastic water bottles are recyclable, it's it's like 71% are not recycled and end up in our landfills or as litter, they're incinerated, or they end up in our waterways. And I'm sure many of you have heard about the terrible plastic problem that we have in the ocean. But these are having very serious consequences on you know, on on the environment, and and that that what we're trying to do at Food and Water Watch through our Take Back the Tap program is to work um, on places like college campuses to make water refilling stations and water fountains and water fountain retrofits that allow you to you know refill your your water bottles much more accessible. And and I think it's it's very important that we you know think carefully about this issue and do what we can to to like I said instead of having policies that go the opposite direction to have policies that um, allow us to invest in our critical drinking water resources and to make tap water more available and more accessible as we as we see this concerning trend and, and what its impacts are. Uh, and Chris, I mean, how, how do you respond to that? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I would also point out that uh, only uh, a few months ago, a research project by a professor at the University of Vermont, which was one of uh, which instilled installed one of the flagship um, bottled water bans on campus. Um, she uh, she did a study of the campus, uh, the impact on the on the campus, and found that not only did banning water um, increase the amount of soft drinks that were being consumed by students, it actually increased the amount of plastic waste that was being handled by the campus, because students were in fact choosing sodas and other sugary drinks instead of um, using the filling stations uh, that the campus made available. By, and, and so in, not only did they ban bottled water completely for sale on the campus, they uh, really didn't have the impact that they wanted. And this was a study conducted by one of their own uh, professors. And I think that really shows quite clearly that banning bottled water but leaving less healthy drinks in place 
is simply not a good decision. Uh, And again, we have no problem with making refill stations available, increasing the number of water fountains, encouraging people to drink water in general, but to ban bottled water specifically, uh, but then turn around and leave far less healthy beverage choices in place is just really a poor decision. I think we can all agree that the, that the access to tap water and, you know, the ability to fa- find a water fountain everywhere is getting, it's getting less and less. And what we're seeing is, you know, bottled water is ubiquitous and it's everywhere that you turn. And so I think what we need to be um, moving towards is, is uh, increased access to um, water fountains and, and tap water and also places where you can refill reusable bottles like water refilling stations, so, but, and that's what we're so, working for. But let me, let me look at, at, at probe this a bit further. I mean, I, so there are all these studies and battles over the National Park, but there, there are kind of competing issues here, it seems to me. That, that on the one hand, you have uh, the, the fact that people are just drinking more water, and, that's, and that for, for many numerous reasons, whether it's because the bottling industry is really pushing water for the fact that we are becoming more health conscious and people want to drink more water, and the trainers and everybody else tell you drink water, and physicians are telling you to drink more water, and they do, and I'm sitting here drinking water as we speak. And, and, and <laughs> not, not out of a bottle, but out of one of our containers yet, but I'm drinking water as we speak. And... and um, and so, so there is that new thing in, in America and the Western world. So we also know that to, to at least one of the things I read um, in, when I was preparing and thinking about talking to you all uh, was that we'd use 17 million barrels of oil to produce all the plastic bottles we need. So like everything else in America and almost everything in our clothing and our bodies, we're an oil-based country, an oil-based economy. And that's, things come out of that, and that's where plastic comes from. That's another part of it. So, and, and the infrastructure, well, and, and if, and, and, yeah, please jump in, and, and, and you look at the infrastructure, it is crumbling, Emily, and, and we're not putting money into the infrastructure. Uh, even, and I come from the land here where, where tap water almost began in Baltimore for healthy tap water. So, you know, and so th- those things are all real. So what is it, what is, what is this, what does this knowledge take us is my question. And anybody can please jump in. You were about to say what, Chris? Well, what I was, I was, first I was just quickly going to point out that the, the barrels of oil um, example is, is often thrown around, and it's kind of a, a misleading um, statement because PET plastic, which is what all um, uh, packaged drink containers and a lot of right. other packaged goods uh, is made from, is actually made from naphtha, which is a byproduct of the refining process. So, yes, it's, of course, it's still petroleum-based, but... PET plastic actually comes from the leftover stuff that's used when petroleum is refined for other purposes. So, yes, of course, it's a, it's a petroleum-based product, and that's an important issue, and, and, and plastic recycling is important in general. But making a statement uh, that leads people to believe that companies are just pulling in barrels of oil to make um, bottled water bottles is, is simply misleading. But you know what I think is, is oh. yeah, these are all very valid questions, and and being a, a responsible and aware environmental um, uh, player is important for everyone. We agree. Well, what are we no, about, Emily? I'm concerned also about the fact that um, you know the Pacific Institute did a report that says it took three takes three liters of water per to, to produce one liter of bottled water because of the whole production process. You know, and I think we're just really seeing as a country, you know, the serious drought in the, the West, the wildfires that are, you know, going crazy. And 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 I think we're at a time where we really need to to think carefully about how we manage our water. 
and that some of these, um, you know, some of these management questions about, you know, granting the, an industry like the bottled water industry rights to extract water from aquifers, um, or even for the, for the water that's used to produce something when we do have this alternative that we really need. We're at this critical moment right now where we need to think carefully about the use of our energy and the use of our water supplies. And, you know, at Food and Water Watch, we believe that's investing in our essential water infrastructure systems and choosing tap water over bottled water as much as possible. So, Roberta, let me ask you this question in, in, in light of what we just heard from Chris and Emily. And, and, and it's funny. The other day I was cleaning out my storage space and I pulled out a 1993 map from National Geographic of water in America. And it was fascinating to, to look at, and given the arguments that we're having today in 2015 uh, about, about water. And, um, and, and then it was arguing about the dangers of, of the aquifers going dry, but it was in a different part of the country. And so, so I, how much is our, uh, does, does, does taking water, bottled water, the water we use and buy commercially, is a, affects that and is, it, it is part of that issue or maybe it's not? Roberta, do I actually you... don't have – yeah, I'm, I'm here. I actually don't have a very clear sense of the direct effect. Um, there's um, – you know, it's right to point out that it does require more water um, than is actually consumed to produce bottled water, about three liters, according to the Pacific Institute. Um, I actually kind of want to – and, and and this is a this is a problem right now in places in, you know on the west coast in particular places like California where water is has become um, something of a luxury it's being rationed it's not raining enough um, but as Chris will I'm sure tell you uh, the the industry is pretty um, creative and resilient with with how and and with how it gets gets the water and where it gets it from um, I think it's important to his point earlier to to mention that this is not just a problem with infrastructure. It's not just a problem with the industry. It's probably a problem with ourselves. And I've realized this in the response to this article from a lot of people, which has been one of, um, you know, kind of like slapping slapping um, our own wrists. We have to take agency over this ourselves. It's our, you know, it's, I haven't heard a convincing argument for why bottled water or the reasons why people should dr- be drinking bottled water that can't then be applied to carrying around a water bottle and uh, that's either full or that you can refill. Um, so, so it's important. And, and I think that that plays into why some of these studies that are conducted uh, find that getting rid of bottled water doesn't increase or doesn't increase water consumption or negatively affects water consumption or increases the consumption of other drinks. It's because we value convenience a little bit too much. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, and given what Roberto says in this whole discussion where we are, and it's, the, the bottled water is reality. I mean, I, I don't know about the two of you, the three of you, but the two of you, especially Roberto and Emily, I buy it. Um, you know, you, you, you're thirsty, you go to the thing and you pop one out. But So talk about, let's talk for a moment before we conclude what the long-term consequences, the long-term probability of this is, where the industry is going, and what we think the future might bring. Um, and let me start with you, Christopher. Well, I think the first thing I would point out is that uh, in terms of water use, according to the USGS, um, BMC, which is uh, uh, where uh, a lot of this data comes from, when you take it all together, bottled water uses uh, the entire industry, including the water involved in making bottled water, uses about 0.1% of all the water in the United States. And in California, it uses 0.02%. 
So we use a very, very small amount of water. Um, we also use it very efficiently. Uh, it actually takes 1.32 liters for every liter of bottled water. Um, and that's uh, a recent study that was conducted for us, but it was conducted um, on the, uh, according to the Beverage Industry Environmental Roundtable Standards, which analyzes water use in all kinds of beverages. So we're efficient, and we're also an industry that is very concerned about water because that is the industry we're in. Um, I think it, it makes it very easy um, to, to kind of make bottled water the bad guy when you talk about water, but when it comes down to it, we, use, we don't use a lot of it. We use it very efficiently. And at least for IBWA members, a lot of our members are small regional bottlers. They're in people's communities. They're your neighbors. They're your friends. Um, a lot of the members that we have have been around for generations. And they're very aware and very concerned about their environmental impact and about water management. Because if so, you don't manage water well, it's not good for the industry. And I'm only jumping in. To, I apologize because for, for time. Emily, your thoughts on, on where this conversation should be going? Well, you know, I think that um, I think we're at a point, you know, where we, there's just the need to continue to educate people. But I think as people get more and more aware, we've seen a lot of changes in behavior. I see a lot more people, for instance, using reusable bags when they go to the grocery store now. And so I think it's it's a process of continuing to educate people to work where we can to have policies that increase access to tap water so that as people carry around their reusable bottles, like Roberto said, that there's places for them to easily refill them, which only encourages that same behavior. And to, to um, like I said, ultimately we need to make the decision that we want to continue to invest in our water infrastructure so that we everyone has access to safe, affordable water for the future. And Roberta, what do you, what do you intend to look at in this? Because we, we're going to come back to this in, the, in future episodes, so tell me where you're going with this. I think that what's unfortunate is not that we drink bottled water, it's that we drink so much and are drinking more of it. Um, I don't think that the bottled water industry is inherently evil. Um, and I don't think that it is completely unnecessary. Uh, it would be, I think, a bit naive to um, assume that that it would be able to wither away and, and there'd be no effect on us. There are many places around the world in the United States where bottled water is, is a necessity. But I don't necessarily agree with the argument that because because the industry is, for example, um, responsible for a small percentage of water use in the United States. It's not an issue worth undertaking. Um, that logic applied to so many other movements that are that are equally important. Um, I think would be would be pretty troubling. The fact that there's an alternative um, that we aren't using as much as we should be tap water. That is, um, I think is is enough for for there to be a legitimate reason to be worried about the rise of bottled water in the United States, whether it so, counts for a small percentage of water intake or not. Well, uh, this is just the beginning of this. Look, I think there's so much more to kind of delve into here uh, from all these perspectives, from Food and Water Watch, from the industry, from journalists who are covering this, because I think it's really important and, and illuminating. I learned a great deal myself just reading about this, and we will put the articles that we've been talking about on our website and information about everybody's work here who you've heard. And we want to thank our guest today for the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, Roberto Ferdman was a journalist who covers food and economics for the Washington Post, who wrote the article, America's Growing Love Affair with the Most Wasteful Thing to Drink That There Is, for the Washington Post's Wonk Blog. 
and Christopher Hogan, who is IOM Vice President of Communications for the International Bottled Water Association, and Emily Wirth, Water Program Director for Food and Water Watch. Robustia recipe for spaghetti, aglio e olio from culinary aficionado Sam Levin. My name is Sam Levin. I'm a senior at UMBC studying information systems. For high school, I attended a Carver Center for the Arts and Technology in Towson. And there, my prime or specialty was culinary. I got to work with a lot of cool chefs in Baltimore, so that sort of like inspired me to keep going with this as mostly just a hobby. So what we're going to try to prepare here today is spaghetti, aglio, e olio. It's a big change of pace from just pasta and red sauce. Basically, it's really, really simple, and that's the point. The, the, the only ingredients we, that you really need are spaghetti, olive oil. Olive oil should be something of an investment since that's sort of a main component. Cheaper olive oils have a bitter taste to them, usually. A nicer olive oil tastes maybe more fruity and smooth. It doesn't have any sort of harsh aftertaste either. And then um, you're going to need, like, crushed red pepper flakes, Italian parsley, not curly parsley, and a bulb of garlic. So you already started some of the prep. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you did here already? You have to make sure to, like, you know, pick the parsley from the stems and give it a wash, and then you got to unwrap each piece of garlic. So you have a handful of parsley picked from the stem, three cloves of garlic peeled. Yeah, it also depends on like how, how big the cloves of garlic too. I never I never break my spaghetti, so I usually cook with a taller pot and I fill it up maybe halfway or almost all the way. But you know, just enough water that like you know you push the pasta down as it when it gets up to a boil. You should add enough salt to make the water taste pretty salty. For this recipe that you're going to make right now, how much of the box are you going to put in? I'm going to throw in like a half a box. After you get the water boiling, you should, uh, you should prepare your garlic by cutting them into pretty thin little, little hockey pucks. You want to cut the garlic lengthwise from the pointed end down to the base and to relatively thin slices that way. Just slice it up like that. Depending on how much you're making, it's really up to you. I really like garlic, so I'm probably going to throw in maybe like a whole tablespoon. While you're bringing your water to boil, you're going to fill up your saute pan with a decent amount of olive oil, enough to cover or coat your spaghetti. You're going to keep it cold. You don't want to turn on the heat yet. And in that same time, you're going to also add in the garlic. Because you don't want to burn the garlic. The point is not to burn the garlic, but to like lightly cook and toast it. You're going to cook the garlic and the oil until it becomes just browned. You can even taste it if you want to make sure that harsh raw flavor is gone. And the olive oil should get some of the flavor of the garlic, and the garlic should get some of the, the flavors of the olive oil, and it should really mellow itself out. You just want to keep an eye on it. It's going to start sizzly bubbling, like very slight bubbles. You don't want it to start frying the garlic. So while you have your garlic and the olive oil on a low heat and you're trying to get your water up to a boil, you should prepare your parsley. With that, we're just going to mince it up pretty normally. It's just going to go on onto the pasta. The Italian parsley is a good contrast to the really nutty mellow flavors that you're going to produce with the olive oil and garlic. 
So after about like four minutes, the garlic on a pretty low heat should be sizzling very slightly. Like, you know, it should be a, a, like a nice golden brown. Once you feel like the garlic is about to just be golden brown, like it's just about to be ready, you can add in enough crushed peppered flakes to make it as spicy as you want. After you throw in the, the crushed pepper flakes, just give it a little stir. Keep an eye on it. Once you have the water at a boil, you're going to throw in your spaghetti. Some people time their pasta. I'm more by taste. So you turned off the heat when you noticed that a lot of them were getting brown. Yeah, when they start to get golden, you should turn off the heat. And you want to throw in anywhere from, depending on how much oil you have, a couple tablespoons to half a cup of the starchy, salty water. And why are you doing that? Throwing in the spaghetti water it stops the garlic from overcooking. After you strain the pasta, you're going to dump it in with the saute pan where the oil is cooking. You want to toss your spaghetti in the garlicky oil sauce. You want to get the garlic all mixed in there. and You can eat these pieces of garlic. They shouldn't taste bad. I mean, as long as they're just slightly gold. After you toss the spaghetti in the oil, then you can go ahead and add in your chopped up parsley. You want to portion it off into a decent bowl and serve it up to your special someone. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Siana Greaves, Morgan Barber, Monifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. Podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. For your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>